0: Thank you, Jim. I I noticed only about half of us nodding off while you were praying. (laughs) I did my best to stay awake, but... You know, sometimes prayer requests can be um, discouraging. You know, when we hear of the needs, like just listening to Jim pray and all the needs that there are, desperate needs, these are sometimes um, very hard for us to uh, hear emotionally and also to just sort of fathom how do we factor the goodness of God into a world that has such challenges, and not just a world but our lives that have such challenges. And it just, it's always helpful to remember that this life is not all of life. In fact, this life is just a blip in eternity's timeline, and that our resurrection is what we're really looking forward to, and what we're ultimately hoping in—the resurrection that it could occur, by the way, at any moment, when Christ comes at the rapture, uh, or um, whenever we go to be with the Lord. We wait for that time for the rapture when our when we're resurrected and we are we are. Once again, with our body and our soul together for eternity. But this is our hope. So um, I think about this, too. Get grief, this is really a rabbit trail. It has nothing to do with Leviticus and what we're looking at. But think about, um, I remember, Peter, James, and John. Peter and John. John lived a long, long time. I mean, like into the 90s, wrote the last book of our Bible, etc. And so he lived a long time. Uh, Peter, you know, about halfway, I guess you might say, uh, died uh, in the 60s, AD 60s. But James, James died like in the 40s. He died like 12, 13 years after the church had started. And it's always been a head scratcher to me, or at least initially, it seems a head scratcher to me, that God, that Christ would pour into Peter, James, and John. And then James is like the first, just all with his head, and he's just, he dies. You know, why didn't the, the Lord take like Bartholomew or somebody who, <laughs> you know, the Christ didn't pour into so much? And we think about people's lives snuffed out in their prime. We think, how tragic is that? But the reality is this life is not all of life. And we have to keep that eternal perspective and remember that the tragedies that we hear about are just momentary things. There is a resurrection, and the resurrection is true life for eternity, and it is as real as we are here today. All right, so now we'll start. Remember back in the day when we would give Christmas cards? I don't mean those electronic things. You send me one of those, it goes right to the delete box. But back when we get Christmas cards, gave Christmas cards, received Christmas cards, I saw an interesting pattern. Whenever, and you may have noticed it too, whenever I sent a Christmas card to someone, about a week later, I'd get one back from them. It's like, wow, what a coincidence. Or somebody gives you a gift, what's your first response? Rats! What am I going to give them? Or, or you might even say, before you say thank you, I didn't get you anything. There's this feeling of obligation. In fact, we used to have a phrase. I don't know that I've heard anybody even say it much anymore. But we used to, we used to say, instead of thank you, we'd say much obliged, that, that we have much obligation, that we feel obligated to someone because they did something. Today we just say thank you. But there's this feeling of obligation. When someone does something for you and you haven't done anything for them, you feel like you need to do something to sort of even the score. Somebody buys lunch for you, what do you feel like? Oh, next time I'll get it. You just have to say that, whether or not there's ever a next time. You feel that sense of obligation. And once you've done it, once you've sent the card, once you've paid for your lunch, now that they've paid for the lunch, Once there's this sense of reciprocity, your debt is paid, and you can check your box. That loop is closed. But there's another kind of gratitude. Uh, I remember when I was first taught uh, Romans chapter six back in the 80s. Um, I know that seems not long ago, but uh, it's long ago (laughs) in my Christian life. It was long ago anyway, and. I mean, Romans 6, read it many times, but I never really understood the life-transforming truths of Romans 6, that sin does not have to dominate my life. It doesn't have to. If I sin, it's because I choose to, not because I have to. This was a freeing truth for me, and it was as plain as the Scripture, as soon as someone said, that's what it means. Romans 6 became a light for me for several years, just this wonderful hope of truth. In fact, when I'd go over to other people's houses, you know, like went to an estate sale and I saw this big family Bible that they were selling, I opened it up to see if it had Romans chapter 6 in it. Just because it was so wonderful, I thought, surely this Bible doesn't have it or people here would know it. And I would sort of leave Romans 6 open there on the table. <laughs> But I actually got to go to my Bible teacher uh, who taught me that Romans chapter 6 and thank him and just tell him how much that had meant to me. And even after I said thank you, and there was this you know, wonderful little fuzzy moment, I walked away and I, I, late, later I felt I, I should thank him again. There's this sense of even though I've closed the loop, the loop's not closed. And so you've got these two kinds of gratitude. You've got the Christmas card sense of gratitude or sort of swapping paychecks or lunch checks where where the loop is closed and you feel like, all right, my debt is paid. And then there's this sense of overwhelming gratitude that you can never say thank you enough. Two totally different motivations. And we usually uh, give something in return for those reasons, either to free our conscience from feeling indebted or to express gratitude that will never end. Now, transition away from Christmas cards and lunch bills to our walk with God. How should a person who is a sinner respond to a God who is holy when by all rights every single one of us, because of our sin, should be condemned apart from the presence of God forever? And yet God provides a way that we can be in his presence forever how would a person respond in light of this let's look at Leviticus chapter 2 Leviticus chapter 2 if you were with us last week we saw an amazing truth the answer to the question how can a sinner have access to a God who is holy the answer is we can't <laughs> unless God provides a way there is no way to come into the presence of a holy God with our sin, unless God provides a way for that sin to be renewed, to removed, and He has. But He has provided just one way, and that's okay. We only need one way. Um, we were driving into the lake. Uh, Kathy and I went walking at the lake this week, and as we were driving in, as many times as we've been there, we drove into the into the lake area, and I thought. You know, I think this road's the only way in and out. And I sort of thought, what if something happened and I needed to get out another way? And then I thought, wait a minute, I only need one way out. I only need one way in. It's not like I can enter more than one way at one time. It's the same way with God. So Christ is the only way. That's okay. We only need one way. There's just one of us. (laughs) We don't need more than one way to God. He has provided the way, the only way. We saw through the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1 last time that God provides a way for sinners to have atonement, to have access to him. And uh, Leviticus 2 now should be, this answers the question, what should be the response of one who has been given access to God? How should we respond to that? Look at Leviticus 2 right in verse 1, now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord. His offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Life-changing, huh? You know, these these, um, acts that we look at here in Leviticus, and one reason we just read Leviticus with our fan going, you know, just We just sort of buzz through it as fast as we can on our annual reading program because it's like, you know, uh, frankincense, that smells great and everything, but uh, yeah, flour, I've got some in the kitchen. But what in the world does this mean? Well, one of the great things about walking a little slower through Leviticus and comparing the timeless truths to uh, lifting the timeless truths from how they applied it in their context, lifting it out of their context, dropping it in our context, we can make this work for us. And it's not a force fit, we'll see. As we flip back and forth a couple of times uh, in the book of Romans, we'll also see that here in just a minute. But notice what we just read, anyone can present this offering. It's not limited, anyone. This is, it means just that, anyone. And the Hebrew term means both men and women. And, and this uh, offering has been variously translated. I'm not sure you have it there. Mine says grain offering. You might also have meal offering or cereal offering. Um, but basically, it's, here it is uncooked fine flour. And that means it is the best, it is the purest. Elsewhere in the Scripture, it is actually valued on the level of silver and gold. And we're told that you, that you would mix it with olive oil. We typically use olive oil to uh, anoint or to set something apart as special. And so here you were setting this aside for God. This was your best. You were taking the very best and you were setting it aside for God. And we're told that you would uh, offer it with frankincense, which was just a practical measure to uh, cover the smell because it would have been unpleasant. But a couple of ways you could do it. First of all, you could offer it uncooked, as we see here. Um, verse 4 is going to tell us later you could also offer it cooked. But there is a final way or a final time that this could be made. Uh, look at verse 14, if you would. Look down at verse 14. It says, Also, if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire, grits of new growth for the grain offering of your early ripened things. So I've got the New American Standard here that says early ripened things. Another way you can understand that is the first fruits. First fruits, which is a a special feast where you would offer to God the first of your crop, which uh, represented the best because it's like all you got at the first is the first, and you don't dedicate that to God as an offering. mean, I'm trusting that there's more to come, and I'm dedicating everything in my heart to you. The best goes back to God. And what's wonderful is God had given it to them, and they give it right back to God. When uh, Kathy and I were trying to teach our daughters how to give, you know, we didn't wait until they, like, were earning their own money and, out and had, a, had a job out in the world before we taught them about giving. We gave them money to give. And so if they had an allowance of like, say, you know, I don't know, two bucks or something like that, we'd say now pick 20 cents out of this $2 and and give that to the Lord. And so they'd do it. But this is money we gave them. They didn't earn this. We gave it to them, and then they gave it back to God. And so in a sense, when we think about giving to the Lord, all we're doing is giving back to him what he's already given to us. Even when we earn the money, uh, he has given us the skill and the ability to do it. And so to give God from the first Fruits from the very best is to it represents that you're giving him ultimately dedicating it all to him. This word grain offering it's it means not just a, a gift but it also has a connection to the Hebrew word that means a tribute like what you would give to a king, and it represented your total dedication to this person. You're not just buying off your conscience like. Christmas cards or a lunch bill, this is the type of gratitude where you realize you get everything, God. Everything belongs to you. My whole life belongs to you. Now, keep your hand here in Leviticus, and we'll do the first of a few back and forths in the book of Romans. So keep your hand here in Leviticus or slip something there and turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8. I read an interesting interview with the actor, now, uh, now dead, Richard Harris. Uh, he's a Shakespearean actor in a lot of Hollywood movies. You, you would definitely recognize him if you don't know who he is. But uh, he played a particular character in one of those Harry Potter movies only because his granddaughter begged him to do it. And he hesitated in doing it because he said he didn't want to get stuck with having to play the same character in like seven movies if they did a lot of sequels. And so he called his agent and says, hey, I just want to know, is there a way that I can get out of this? And his agent called him back and said, yes, you can get out of it. And Harris said, great, tell me how. And the agent said, you have to die. (laughs) And interesting, though, (laughs) that uh, Harris died 11 months after this interview uh, happened. So he got out of it. But to use Harris's negative example in a positive way, our obligation to God is until we die. There is no getting out of our commitment to the Lord. Romans 8, look down at verse 10, if you would. Romans 8, verse 10. Paul writes, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So notice the feeling of obligation or the sense of obligation we have is Prefaced with why we have it. We have the Spirit of God within us. Christ died for us and rose again, and the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is also going to do the same for us. In other words, like what we said up front this life is not all of life. We're going to be resurrected. And because we're going to be resurrected, we are under obligation to obey God, not to live according to the flesh but to live according to the Spirit, as Romans 8 goes on to talk about. Our obligation to God isn't one and done. We aren't buying Jesus' lunch. The Lord has given us what we can never pay back. The Hebrews of old knew it, and we should know it as well. Now, keep your place there in Romans, and we'll come back to it, but flip back to Leviticus, if you would back Leviticus and still in chapter 2 it's not about your grain it's about your life giving all to God Um, your body your mind your house your spouse your money your family everything is his look at verse 2 He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons the priest and shall take from it a handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense and the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, the thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. So, what they would give for the sustenance of the priest, notice that it isn't given to the priest, but it's given to the Lord. The priests get it, but it's given to the Lord. And it is described as most holy. The word that's used here for uh, memorial comes from the Hebrew word um, zakar. We get our name Zachary or Zachariah or Zach from it. It means to remember. And what were they to remember? They were to remember the handful that they gave to be offered, essentially represents that all of it belongs to God. Uh, When I was in junior high school, we had to learn Texas history. Maybe I should say we had the privilege of learning Texas history. Uh, as As a Texas boy, I had to learn Texas history. And my Texas history, and we had a big state. You know, wouldn't it be nice to have grown up in like New Jersey or something, where you didn't, where it wasn't that big? Maybe not, maybe not. Good grief. <laughs> it's a metaphor. I don't really want to grow up in New Jersey. I'm just saying we got a big state. Anyway, my Texas history teacher was also my football coach. And this guy taught history like he coached football. In other words, he yelled at us a lot. And Coach Schofield was his name. And he was also an amateur archaeologist And one day in our Texas history class, he brought into class a moccasin, an old moccasin sandal-looking thing It was just falling apart. It was like 200 years old. He said he found it out in the plains of Texas, and this was an Indian shoe, and I'll never forget what he said. He said something like, I'm passing this around so you can look at it. If you break it, I'm going to make you eat it. I kid you not, that is all I remember from my Texas history <laughs> class. Just <laughs> Passing that moccasin on. But actually, that wasn't all I remember. I remember also Coach Schofield taught us about what the battle cry at Goliad was. You remember the battle cry at Goliad? Remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. Exactly. Remember the Alamo. Um. In fact, Schofield yelled it so loud, I think they heard it in Mexico. (laughs) By the way, another little sidebar, my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-whatever-grandfather, I think his name was Richard. I know Stiles is right, but I think his name was Richard. Most of my ancestors are named Richard. It really makes the family tree a problem. (laughs) But anyway, he was told by Sam Houston to guard Santa Ana. So that is our family's single claim to fame. In fact, Sam Houston said something like, uh, you know, if there's anybody I trust to watch Santa Anna, it's Richard Stiles. So I thought, yeah, get him, Rick. <laughs> but remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo didn't mean, ah, oh, remember the Alamo? <laughs> no, it was intended to make you do something. You remember the Alamo in order to whip them at Goliad. The goal, the battle cry at Goliad was remember the Alamo. And that memory of the past was to motivate you to live a certain way or to do a certain thing. It means that we do something. And that is the word that's used here for memorial. It is not just, ah, we remember what God did for us. But we remember, so as to act. A couple of more verses, and then we're going to apply this to our lives. Look, uh, look at verse eleven, Leviticus two eleven. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours. Moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So several things to notice here. Uh, Elsewhere in the scriptures, we, we learn that leaven, not in every case, but in many cases, most cases, leaven represents a permeating, corrupting influence of sin. You know, when you, when you put just a little leaven in the lump of dough, you give it time and it's in the whole thing. The thought here is you don't put any leaven in this. It is fine flour without leaven. In other words, when it's given as an offering, that offering is assumed to represent you. Each of these things had a representation. The priest represented God. The sacrifice, whether it's last time we saw an actual animal that died, represented you dying. And now this grain offering represents you, represents the person who's worshiping. And so to offer this flour without leaven means you are offering to God a life without sin, a life without the corrupting influence. You are deciding that you are going to be pure before God. No leaven. And what's this honey business? Like, what's wrong with honey? Well, the word here for honey also means any sweetness from fruit like from grapes or figs or something like that. And if you let that go for a while, these things quickly ferment and, again, cause corruption. So none of that. No leaven, no honey, but you can add salt. And, John, you need extra salt on yours, okay? Absolutely. Why? What's with salt? Salt is a preservative. And so, again, this represents the permanence of your commitment to God. So this, this sacrifice that you were making represented that your commitment to be pure, your commitment uh, uh, to have a permanent relationship with God. It represented permanence, a lifelong devotion. It's not a one-and-done thing. It's lifelong. All right, so keep your spot here in Leviticus and turn back to Romans. This time look at chapter 12, Romans 12. How do we apply this? Once again, we take the timeless truth and we put it in our context and apply it. I've got a principle for you. It comes from Leviticus, but it could also work here in Romans 12. It's timeless. It works in our day as well. And it's simply this. The Lord expects believers to offer themselves and the best they have as an expression of dedication and gratitude. The Lord expects believers, he expects us, to offer ourselves and the best we have as an expression of dedication and gratitude. Notice that the grain offering, of which we're talking about today, came after the burnt offering we talked about last week. Why is that important? Because, remember, last week the question was, how can a person know that they're right with God? Once that question is answered, now the response is, how can a person who knows they're right with God, what should their response be? And their response should be to give the best they have as an expression of dedication and gratitude because of what God has done. Which brings us to Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now these verses are so familiar to us as to they've almost lost their punch. You could probably have set them right along with me as I read them here from the Scripture. But think of them in context of Leviticus, because it's the same timeless truth, just applied in a different way. This word conformed was actually the word that they used when they would, in the day when they would form a stamp, like on a coin. You have uh, you know hot metal, and they would impress a stamp on it, and now you have the image of the emperor or whoever is on the coin. It's the same idea here. What is molded reflects the mold. And Paul says it's not this world that we're to be conformed to. Uh, In fact, I think the J.B. Phillips paraphrase even says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold when it uh, paraphrases this verse. D.L. Moody said this. I love this quote. He said, I thought when I became a Christian, I had nothing to do but just lay my oars in the bottom of the boat and float along. But I soon found out that I would have to row hard against the current. Great metaphor. That's exactly what Paul is saying. We can't stick it in neutral in the Christian life. We've got to get it in gear. or Think of it however you want, whether you're in reverse or you're in forward. But you've got it in the gear that's going against the current, against the traffic. And the process begins when we place our faith in Christ. That's what Paul means here. Uh, In fact, that's what repentance means. The word repent. When you hear the word repent, what do you think? Usually, you think of some evangelist with his diamond-studded ring pointing at you. Repent! Right? Especially you. We think of it as change your life. But that's getting the cart before the horse. Actually, the original word in the New Testament for repent it's not talking about changing your life. It's about changing your mind. That's what the word means. Meta, the, the word is meta, nao, or, or noo. No, oh. Meta, change, nao, mind. Change mind. And it's not just to, to change your mind, but to change your mindset. You're going one direction, and now you're going another direction. That's what repentance, that's how repentance begins. And it is actually synonymous with Faith. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are repenting from trusting in whatever else you had been trusting in, and now you're trusting in Christ. It is a life change. And that's why Paul says, therefore, if we were to read all of Romans 1 through 11, we would see the great promise and provision of God through giving Jesus Christ for us, and his grace is abundant. Therefore, in light of all that, in light of what he has done he says, now your body is a sacrifice. Think of that with, with regard to Leviticus. In chapter 1 of Leviticus, with the burnt offering, this is the means by which we know we can come and be acceptable to God, if, if we were the Hebrews. Then your response to that, now Leviticus 2, is to give an offering to God, saying that we are fully dedicated and we're fully grateful for him. Paul says the same thing here, in light of what Christ has done for us, Romans 1-11, through 11, Present your body now as a sacrifice. Our bodies are sacrifices to God. They are living sacrifices, but notice, still holy. Our bodies are a holy sacrifice. Notice they are are also acceptable to God. We don't have to work up and be worthy. We are holy sacrifices, acceptable to God. This is our spiritual service or spiritual act of worship. Worship this is the mindset this is the same idea uh i used to have a car that uh that was a firebird pontiac firebird and this is uh, i had this when i was single this is a single man's car it had t-tops and when after kathy and i got married you know we still drove around in it until we had our first child and it's like you know a car seat doesn't really work with a firebird you could kind of take the T-top off and kind of work it down in, you know, through the top. But I thought, oh, we're going to get rid of it. So I got rid of the, the Firebird, sold it, and some months later I was rummaging around in my desk and I found a set of keys to the T-tops. And I thought, ah, I need to send those to the new owner. So I mailed it to the new owner. And I thought about that in the years that's gone by in relation to the Christian life because as we go on in life we're going to find more and more areas of life that we thought we, that were ours that turns out they're not. Those keys weren't my keys to keep. When that person bought the car, they bought the keys that were in my desk. They just didn't know it, and I didn't know it. But when I came to know it, it was my obligation to give those keys to the new owner. It's the same way with our walk with Christ. When you Trust Jesus Christ at the time you have given him all that there is, but honestly, you haven't given them all that there is. He's got plenty to show you as life goes on. You've got more keys in your desk than you could shake a stick at. I'm not sure that metaphor really works, but you understand what I'm saying. And so do I. My desk is full of keys. And after I find them, it is my obligation not to go, hey, look, there's a set of keys. Close the door. Close the drawer. No. Nope. You take those out and give them to God. The Lord, more and more as we go on in our Christian life, is going to show us, here's another part of your life that you haven't fully surrendered to me. Surrender it to me. This is what Paul means when he talks about be transformed by the renewing of your mind, presenting your body to God as daily as a living and holy sacrifice. You know, the problem, of course, with a living sacrifice is it tends to want to crawl off the altar. Mine sure does doesn't it? And yours does too. Uh, Remember the Alamo. It doesn't mean study the history of the Alamo. It doesn't mean put Davy Crockett quotes on the wall of your house. It doesn't even mean, hey, let's all make a pilgrimage down to San Antonio and visit the Alamo. No, remember the Alamo means think about it and make a change in the way you live. It means to act. Paul is saying in view of God's mercy— now to jump on our principle again, in view of God's mercy, the Lord expects believers to offer themselves and the best they have as an expression of dedication and gratitude. And don't get uptight about this. You know, the Lord's going to reveal you your keys, as it were, in time. Don't feel like God, you know, show me everything or or just go on this, you know, crazy hunt for all the keys in your life. They'll show up. God will bring it to your attention when it's time to deal with it. Aren't you glad he doesn't do it all at once? Man, we'd all crawl under the bed and want to turn the light off. But little by little, he reveals as we're in the Word, as we're in conversations with each other, as we hear the voice of God through the Scriptures and that silent, that presence of conviction by the Holy Spirit that, that there's something that's not right and that we need to make it right with God. It's just this daily walk with him, finding keys and sending them, sending them to Christ every day. All right, turn back to Leviticus one more time, and this time look at chapter 6. Still the grain offering, but this is a different, different thing. Leviticus 6. It's amazing. This was true 3,500 years ago when Moses wrote Leviticus it was it was true 2000 years ago when Paul wrote Romans, and it's true right here for us today. The timeless truth of God's grace and our response to it. Leviticus 6 verse 14. Leviticus 6:14. Now, this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar, and then one of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the incense, that is the frankincense, that is on the grain offering, and he shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma as its memorial offering to the Lord. What is left of it, Aaron and his sons, are to eat. It shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They are to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. Now, that's significant for a couple of reasons. Again, the sacrifice represents you or represents the worshipper. The priest represents God. And so for the priest to eat the sacrifice represents guess what? That God accepts not that God eats you, but that God accepts you. That you're acceptable. And that he does it right there in the holy place means when you leave the holy place, it means you need to you need to leave knowing that God accepts you. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to wait for an email tomorrow to find out how the test results came out. You can leave that moment, that day, knowing that God is pleased. This phrase, a soothing aroma or a pleasing aroma, doesn't mean that it smelled good. It means that God is pleased with it, and thus God is pleased with the worshiper. Paul saw this kind of devotion uh, also when he was in Rome and he was writing to the Philippians. Listen to what he told them. Uh, They had sent a financial gift to Paul when he was in prison in Rome, and Paul responded, and he wrote this. He said, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. See, Paul is referring to their financial gift, and he calls it a fragrant aroma. He calls it an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He's using Leviticus language to say that what you have dedicated to God, not to me, Paul, is the same thing like when the worshiper would dedicate something and the priests would eat it. It wouldn't mean that it was given to the priest, it was to the Lord. And the response was, it is a fragrant aroma, it is pleasing to God. Now, of course, God is pleased with our sacrifices, obviously, whether we give financially, but ultimately, he wants our lives. He wants all of us, not just our money, all of us, not just our time, all of us. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? Without hesitating, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is the greatest commandment. And it's our greatest challenge. Thankfully, the grace of God gives us a wonderful safety net, because we don't always do that. I know I sure don't do that all the time. Love God with all my heart, all my mind, everything in my life. None of us do. But this is our goal. This is our tough assignment. So the second principle comes right off the first, but I'll repeat the first one. Once again, the Lord expects believers to offer themselves and the best they have as an expression of dedication and gratitude. And the second is really simple. The Lord is pleased when we do this. It's a soothing aroma. When we dedicate our lives to him, when we do the hard work of Romans 12, that our lives, our bodies, our minds, renewing our minds, is dedicated to God as an expression of gratitude. God is pleased with it. And we can leave wherever we are, as it were, knowing that God is pleased. So I hope that you'll leave today with that mindset as well, that knowing that God knows your weakness, God knows your struggles, your failures, and he's not displeased with you. In fact, if you're truly seeking to walk with Christ and when he reveals those keys to you, you say, Lord, I love these keys. I know I've given you the car, but I really want to hang on to these keys. Um, he'll eventually get them, won't he? And it's not because he's mean or he wanted to take stuff away from you. It's because he loves you and he wants what's best for you. It's that way. I remember reading after 9 11 about a lady named Betty Maxfield survived the attack, uh, the one at the Pentagon. And I'll read her words to you what she said about surviving. but instead of listening to her words and thinking about 9/11, listen to her words and think about your relationship with Jesus Christ, because it is an amazing one-to-one connection. She said this: "I should have been dead. I was, for some reason saved my question now is what am i supposed to do with my life i just can't go on wasting it i thought i was living my life well before but obviously there's more that i can do to say thank you for my life and my second chance at it isn't that a great perspective not just of one who survived this attack of course but for us in our walk with jesus christ God has saved us for a purpose. His glory, indeed, our salvation, of course, but he's also saved us because he wants us to do something with our lives, to dedicate ourselves to him. And he's pleased when we do it, when we offer ourselves in the best we have as an expression of dedication and of gratitude. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing how we can read a book that we so seldom read, Leviticus. And even the difficulty of our reading it this morning, we're still able to find the nuggets of truth in it that are timeless. We see it not only in Leviticus, but in Romans, and we see it in the reality of our day-to-day walk with you. How should we respond to you who have saved us? We dedicate ourselves to you. We live lives of gratitude, not lives that take your grace for granted. So Father, would you strengthen us today in two ways. First, would you encourage us to live lives fully dedicated to you, just day by day. Help us surrender those keys to you to be renewed and renewed in our mind as we bathe it in the scriptures on a daily basis and allow you to have your way with our thoughts and ultimately with our actions. But secondly, Lord, would you also give us the wonderful affirmation that you are pleased when we do this, that we don't run around living life under your thumb, but we run around with life of being in your arms, of enjoying your pleasure when we are seeking you. Thank you for reminding us. Not only are we accepted, but you are pleased. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Don't forget, next week, uh, Barnabas will be with us. There will be no Zoom. And Christmas tickets are over here. Until then, have a blessed week. May the Lord bless you and keep you.